This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. It is time to launch a new war against the evil of lies, deceit, and darkness and go all out to win the victory of truth and transparency and light. Sure. Go ahead. Believe everything you see on television, everything you read in the newspaper. Go ahead. Get your history out of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, that's right. Oswald killed Kennedy. Yeah, sure he did. Man, you are living in Disneyland. Fifteen hundred years ago, everybody knew the Earth was the center of the universe. Five hundred years ago, everybody knew the Earth was flat. And fifteen minutes ago, you knew that people were alone on this planet. Imagine what you know tomorrow. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the broadcast for Sunday, November the 6th, 2011. A little bit later in the show, in the second hour actually, we'll uh, try to address some of those age-old questions Uh, You've heard the expression, you can't avoid it, it's written in the stars, and life is what you make it. Well, which is it? Is it written in the stars, or is life what you make it? Since the day we're born, we're bombarded with all this contradictory claims that our lives are predestined, and that fate deals us the cards we must play, or that our lives are the results of our choices, and that we shape it as we go along. In the second hour, we'll talk to author Marie Jones, one of my favorite guests, and she's got another book out, Destiny versus Choice, the scientific and spiritual evidence behind fate and free will. Uh, first of all, of course, it's no secret that the, the big story uh, that continues to be the big story is the, the world financial crisis. And the, the world financial system really is at stake. Uh, but how did we get in this mess? It really comes back to uh, the, the root question. What is money? I mean, what is it really? Where does it come from? Does it come out of thin air? And um, if so, uh, how do we fix this problem? How do we resolve uh, this potential cataclysmic event, uh, worldwide depression? Well, my next guest has some answers, and he's really dedicated uh, a large portion of his life uh, trying to to yell his message from the housetops uh, to anyone that will listen. He's always been a political maverick uh, going back to 1949 when he was first elected as a liberal uh, MP for the riding of Davenport in Toronto, the youngest MP ever elected at that time. He later went on to become uh, the Minister of Defense in 1963 under Prime Minister Lester B. Pearson and uh, was at, uh, under Pierre Trudeau, in fact, was the deputy prime minister here uh, to tell us how he would reform the world financial uh, system, including our very own Bank of Canada, is the Honorable Paul Hellyer. 
Paul, first of all, thank you so much for coming down and taking the time. It's a real pleasure. You've described the world monetary system as a gargantuan Ponzi scheme. What do you mean by that? Well, it's, a, it's really a total fraud. And the, uh, it, it's, the Ponzi itself is alarmingly simple. It is simply that the chartered, privately owned banks lend the same money to several people at the same time and charge interest from each one of them. And, of course, you couldn't get away with this uh, in any other field. You couldn't rent a room uh, to 15 or 20 different people and collect rent from each or a, or a grazing farm or anything like that. But in money, in a bank, you can do it. And the only difference, really, between this Ponzi scheme and, say, the one that Bernie Madoff uh, had, uh, this has actually done more damage to probably thousands of times more people over a couple of centuries than he did. But the difference was he was... He was operating outside the law, and somehow the banks, over a long period of time, have persuaded uh, prime ministers, kings, uh, potentates, and uh, presidents to allow them to operate inside the law, and that is the essential difference. But it's still, it's just an absolute fraud, and uh, I think the sooner it's exposed as such and people at least understand what the, the rules are, the, uh, the better off the world will be. It's an obvious question, but one that doesn't get asked often, and that is, how is money created? Well, it's an interesting question. Let me go back a little bit. Most people have no idea what money is. Uh, Graham Towers, the first governor, and in my opinion, the brightest of all the governors of the Bank of Canada that we've had ever, um, said money is just a book entry. If he were alive today, he would say money is just a computer entry. So it was interesting. When I wrote my first book on the subject probably about 20 years ago, I did a poll of about 100 people, and they included, uh, they included businessmen, doctors, dentists, lawyers, uh, and others, including the publisher of the Toronto Sun at the time and the, uh, the executive editor of the Globe and Mail. And I said... Where does money come from? Well, first of all, they were very uncomfortable with the question. And I said, oh, come on now, take a guess. And they said, the government prints it. And I said, what proportion of the new money that's created each year do you think the government prints? And the estimates range from 60% to 100%. And I thought to myself, wow. If that were the case, we would have a totally different system than we have now, and we wouldn't be having recessions and depressions as we've had for the last uh, century or more. And in effect, all of these people, of all of these people, there was not one, and they included some financial writers as well, who really understood how the system works. And yet they're the people who are telling the government how to run the world. So uh, I found it very interesting, and I put in my book, I actually mentioned uh, some names at the time of people, and not, you know, with any malice at all, but merely to illustrate the difficulty we have of trying to persuade the people who run things that they have to spend some time learning about money, where it comes from, and uh, and uh, how it could be, uh, the system could be altered for the benefit of, uh, of all Canadians and all mankind. So the, it's um, the way that money is created, actually, is interesting. 
We, uh, the banks today uh, create nearly all of the money, somewhere between 95 and 98 percent worldwide. And uh, people often wonder, and I think it's a good question to ask them, is where do you think the banks get the money that they lend you? And the answer usually is, well, from their depositors. And the implication is, and the banks love this myth, that the money that you deposited yesterday, I can borrow today. But in fact, they're fully lent out nearly all the time. The chances of that being true are about one in a million. And so what actually happens is you come in and you want $35,000 to, to buy a new car. And so the, your friendly banker says, well, what collateral have you got? And you say, well, uh, I have some stocks and bonds. And they say, well, that's not quite enough. Have, have you got a mortgage on your second mortgage on your house or your cottage or something like that? And failing that, they say, well, have you got a rich relative that will co-sign with you? And finally, they're satisfied with your collateral. And then they say, okay, um, and you sign a note. And they, it's a demand note that they can call any time. And uh, it's for the principal that you're borrowing, plus interest at some rate, usually prime plus 1%, 2%, depending on the color of your eyes and so on. And as soon as that's all agreed, they tap their computer, and presto, 35000 appears in your account that you can go out and spend to buy the car. Created out of thin air. Created out of nothing, yes, out of thin air, so to speak. And seconds earlier, that money did not exist. So this is what people really don't understand. And what they're doing, they're not really lending you money. They're lending you credit. And in return, you're giving them a promise to pay what they have given you plus interest, which, of course, is the stickler and the reason that uh, there's so much debt in the world. Well, then the way they, they – what they do afterwards, they put your note on the asset side of your, their books – and the money they create for you on the liabilities, so that their books balance. And the, the way they make their money is from the spread. So if you decided, for example, that you didn't want to buy the car, you read the paper and they said next year's models are going to be better, so I'll leave the money in the bank until uh, the new models come out and then I'll, then I'll buy. They'd probably pay you zero or maybe a quarter of 1% on your deposit. At the same time, you're paying three, four, five, six percent on your note. And it's the difference between these two, which the banks and the economists call the spread, which is how they make their money. So consequently, the more loans they make, um, the more interest they get coming in from their loans, the more money they make, and they're very anxious to do that, of course, if they can find uh, trustworthy uh, borrowers. Let's say the total of the deposits in their bank is, and cash on hand, is $50,000. How many times can they lend that out? How many times can they leverage that? Well, it's, it's not cash uh, at the moment uh, anymore, Richard. The, we had a, a system like that. If, you, if you'd like me to go back a little bit on the question of leverage, it's something most people understand. Would you be interested in that? Sure. We can take a, a couple minutes. Yeah. We go back about uh, to three, a little over three centuries to King William's War, and the king ran out of money to pay his bills on the continent. <clears throat> so somebody said, why don't you establish a bank? And so uh, he said, good idea. 
and the Bank of England was chartered. Well, the, uh, the rich people of the day subscribed a million two hundred thousand pounds in gold and silver, I guess, and they lent it all to the king, to the government at 8%, which is a pretty hefty interest rate for a government-guaranteed loan. Then to show his gratitude, the king said, now you can print, P-R-I-N-T, another 1,200,000 pounds in banknotes and lend them to your friends at high interest rates. So in effect, they were lending the same capital twice, once to the king and once to the people that took out their loans. So the ratio or the leverage, whatever you want to call it, was two to one. Well, over the years, due to the uh, avarice of the banks and the collusion of politicians, uh, that ratio has become much more generous. In the early days of the 20th century, the federally chartered U.S. banks had to have a 25% gold reserve, which means that they could lend the same capital four times. In Canada, our banks had to have a cash reserve when I was young of 8%, which means that they could lend the same money 12 and a half times. Well, then along the line, they changed the system. This is a, a new subject of, of change to the ideas of Milton Friedman, and they have basically gone off cash reserves in favor of, of capital adequacy. So our banks virtually have no cash reserves at all. They have uh, maybe one cent or a cent and a half for every dollar you think you have in the bank. But it's, it's virtually nothing. And the only reason that they can get away with it is the same reason that they've gotten away with it for years and years and years. And that is because we don't all go in and ask for our money at the same time. If we did, we couldn't get it because it's not there. And that's the, that's the, the scheme that has worked so successfully for... Uh, for so many generations and made so many very wealthy people in the banking industry. All right, Paul, uh, sit tight. We'll come back. And uh, when we come back on the other side, I want, to f- I want to find out who's supposed to be printing the money. I mean, I, I always thought it, were, it was the government, but somehow we've, we've lost that control. We'll find out. Paul Hellyer, the Honorable Paul Hellyer, joins me here on The Conspiracy Show, author of Light at the End of the Tunnel, A Survival Plan for the Human Species. Back with more in a moment. Don't go away. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind. On The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations, what goes up? must come down and it lands on the conspiracy show with richard serrett from zoomer radio am 740 welcome back political maverick the honorable paul hellier is uh, with us uh, talking about money what is it where does it come from and uh, really trying to sort out this whole world uh financial uh, mess uh, that we find ourselves in 
Aren't governments charged with the task of printing money? I mean, in the United States, I believe it's in the Constitution, but I- I- here in Canada, who is supposed to print the money? Well, it's, a, it's legally, our government owns the patent. This was a prerogative of the crown. And we have, the, of course, a monarchical system. So the crown owns the patent to make the money. Uh, and our government exercises that prerogative on behalf of, uh, of the people who, in effect, are the beneficiaries. The problem is that instead of, of um, exercising it ourselves, the government, they have delegated it and licensed the chartered banks to do virtually all of it. Now, this was not always true. Um, there was a time in Canadian history from 1939 to 1974 when the money creation function was shared between the, <clears throat> between the government and the private banks. And what I'm actually recommending, and which we can talk about later, is really going back to that precedent of 1939 to 1974, which worked so beautifully and uh, which made Canadians a lot better off than they have been ever since, well, and uh, taking advantage of the, of the power of the, our power through the Bank of Canada to solve our problems. I do, I do want to talk about the, the, the Bank of Canada, the role of the Bank of Canada, because that's central to your, uh, your um, idea of reforming the monetary system here in Canada. But let me just see if I understand what you're saying so far. The, the chartered banks are able to create money out of thin air by... Uh, punching a, a, a key on the computer, right. and presto, $35,000 goes into your account. That costs them nothing to do. Then they can leverage that many times over and keep lending that money over and over and over. No, that again. isn't quite the way it works. They, they have to have, under the, under the old system, they had to have so much cash, and they could lend that so many times, leverage. And under the present system of capital adequacy, they can only lend under the law 20 times. They can only have assets equal to 20 times their capital. So as, as soon as they get up to the limit, allegedly, because they're, they had ways of beating this by having things off books, off accounts, um, but allegedly they're supposed to not have assets greater than 20 times their capital. And they can increase their capital. They can <clears throat> issue some uh, uh, preferred shares or, or whatever and increase their capital. And then automatically that can be leveraged 20 times uh, in, the, in the market to uh, increase their uh, interest-bearing assets. When the government of Canada needs money for an infrastructure program, they go to these international lenders, these banks, these chartered banks... Yes, they do, but not always. If you want to go back now in the, the history of, of the uh, Bank of Canada, I'm, I'm, as you know, I'm a child of the Depression, and I saw the total misery and poverty that existed then and uh, decided after getting answers from my economics professors that didn't please me that this had been a monetary phenomenon and Something had to be done about it. But looking back in history, in 1938, there were no jobs in Canada. You know, if you're looking for a job, just forget it, because there weren't any. 1939, the war broke out. Pretty soon, everyone was working. 
They're either in the armed forces or building factories or making munitions or feeding the troops. Some, everyone was working. Their unemployment was down, you know, as close to zero as it's ever, ever been. And what happened was the Bank of Canada would buy bonds from the government of Canada and, uh, and give them cash in exchange. The government of Canada would spend that money into circulation and pay the troops and pay for the munitions and so on. And uh, the money would wind up in the banking system where it was called high-powered money. And then that was the money that was leveraged so that the banks could make more loans to people to buy war bonds and uh, to build factories and all of that sort of thing. Now, between the bank and the government, what happened was the government paid the bank at that time interest on those bonds. Very low interest, but interest. And then... Uh, because we owned the Bank of Canada. Yeah, Canadians owned it. Right. Well, this... Yeah, we, Mackenzie King nationalized it after he became prime minister in 1935. Then the bank would give those interest payments back as dividends to the shareholder, which is the government of Canada. So the cost of that money was as near zero as you can get. It's, in effect, interest-free money. And this was the system that we had from 39 to 74, and it worked beautifully because it helped, first of all, it helped get us out of the Depression, helped finance World War II, and then after the war, it helped finance the Trans-Canada Highway and the St. Lawrence Seaway and our great new air terminals and helped lay the foundation for our social security system. Virtually debt-free money. Debt-free money. Well, it, yeah, technically there was debt, but as far as cost was concerned, it was, uh, it was near zero. And, and it's the same thing, the same principle as debt-free money because you own it and you're paying yourself back, actually, rather than paying the international uh, Lenders. Who else could borrow from the Bank of Canada? Could the provinces? Could the municipalities? Uh, it, the, the rules have changed over the years. They have, they did make a few loans to provinces, I think, during the Great Depression. But uh, of recent date, uh, only the chartered banks. So I say the system changed in 1974, and the Bank of Canada stopped lending giving the government of Canada zero-cost money, and in effect required the government to go out and borrow money from the, in the market, from the banks and from wherever they could get it. And so the Bank of Canada stopped serving its shareholders in 1974. Up until then, we, the shareholders, had been getting a decent break. After that, we've been getting the, the royal gears, and it has cost the Canadian people billions and billions and billions of dollars. What was our accumulated federal debt prior uh, to the, uh, the flip in 1974 when the monetarists took over? It was peanuts. It was just peanuts. And from 1974 to now? It's skyrocketed to, as you know, above $600 billion. What percentage of that $600 billion would be compound interest owned to the international bankers? Probably about 95%. Nearly all. It's owned to whoever owns the Canadian bonds, whoever has bought the Canadian bonds. 
And how much of our income tax goes to simply servicing the interest on the debt? I haven't seen the recent numbers, but I know in the States, you know, it's something like almost half, 35% or something like that. And it's a, a very large chunk. So we would be paying far, far less tax if it hadn't been for them. You were in the Trudeau cabinet. Um, I believe you were Minister of Transport under Trudeau and later uh, essentially Deputy Prime Minister. Trudeau was an economic nationalist by all accounts. Why did he allow this to happen? He didn't know what was going on. The, um, the governor of the bank, Gerald Bowie, and incidentally, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't in government in 1974. I had uh, left the government on a question of principle related to housing. In 1974, the Bank of Canada changed the system without the advice or consent of the government as far as I know, because I spent hours and hours going through Mr. Trudeau's archives looking for something where the <clears throat> Governor Bowie would have told him what was going on. Either Jerry Bowie didn't understand what was going on or for some reason didn't want to share it with the Prime Minister. So this raises probably the, one of the biggest questions that you can possibly get. Democracy. You've heard of that word. How do you define it? Isn't it supposed to be government by the people, for the people? I don't, I've looked through all the dictionaries, and I can't find anywhere that it says it'll be by an oligarchy of bankers, unelected. And what about that old idea of no taxation without uh, representation? And in effect, by what it has done, the Bank of Canada has affected our taxes very, very significantly. So, in 1981-82, when uh, Paul Volcker in the United States decided to give monetarism the real test, he raised interest rates in the United States to about 18%. In Canada, they went to 22%. The carnage, the social carnage, was unbelievable. You know, I forget how many, but about a million people put out of work and people off their farms after four or five generations, and people losing their businesses left and right. And a disastrous consequence. The government didn't have anything to do with that. That was all the responsibility of the Bank of Canada, who brought on that recession deliberately, because it was their way of controlling inflation. Much better ways that we can discuss sometime. Yes, let's do that, uh, perhaps on the other side. The Honorable Paul Hellyer, political maverick, talking about money and how to reform the Bank of Canada right here on The Conspiracy Show, AM 740. Don't go away. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 
Well, down in the United States, uh, the man that's leading the charge to reform their central bank, that would be the Federal Reserve, is, of course, uh, Congressman Ron Paul. Up here in Canada, the equivalent is 87-year-old Paul Hellyer, the former Deputy Prime Minister of Canada. Uh, uh, Paul, I mentioned Ron Paul, who is uh, leading the charge to reform the Federal Reserve, Uh, which is sort of like the Central Bank of Canada in the United States, except it's not owned by Canadians or Americans. It's owned by the private bankers. Right. Uh, And it's obviously sort of a public-private venture, but primarily owned by the private bankers. It was brought into being ostensibly to uh, ameliorate these boom-and-bust cycles. That was the excuse, certainly in Canada. In the United States, as you know, the banks pulled a fast one on the Congress and got through this total control of the U.S. money supply, just took it right out of the hands of Congress where it belongs constitutionally, under their constitution, and put it in the hands of of the bankers who were working for bankers. And uh, it has, you know, it has been absolutely disastrous for the United States and still is. Ours was a little better, at least Uh, Mackenzie King nationalized it, so it was supposed to be working for us, even though it uh, it hasn't been for a long time. When when that recession took place, of course, what happens is when people aren't working, they don't pay taxes. So we have a big deficit. And where does the deficit go? It's rolled over into debt. And the interest is compounded. And it just keeps growing and growing and growing. And the, the crazy thing, here's, here's a government, allegedly, the Bank of Canada's an arm of government, allegedly, you know. On the one hand, one arm of government is putting a million people out of work, and on the other hand, the government's creating 25, 35 new programs to try and put a tiny few of them back to work. It is insane, really, what happened. So then we'd no sooner get over that recession, well, not quite, but our debt went away up then. It just started to taper off and come down a little bit. And John Crow did it to us all over again in 1991. And one of the best uh, economists in in Quebec called the Great Canadian uh, Funk or something, rather some extended period when the Canadian economy was working way below its potential. And, uh, And so, again... The debt just started to go way up. The deficit started, of course, first, and then the debt went way up. And, uh, and we have never, never really covered, recovered from that. Why would the, the owners of the system, the bankers, uh, whether we're talking about the Rockefellers or the Morgans or the Rothschilds, why would they want to destroy the economy, uh, dry up the money supply, hurt the middle class, when those are their depositors, those are the people that are buying the cars and the houses, and that's how ultimately they're also making their money. Yeah, but don't forget, every time you have a recession, prices of farms and houses and businesses go down. So if they're privy to what's happening, or if they have access to money through their central banks, they can then increase their holdings, they can go out and buy stocks and farms and businesses at maybe 80 cents on the dollar or 70 cents on the dollar or maybe during the depression for 40 cents on the dollar and they have a windfall 
And so all they need to do is to bring on a little recession, which they've done many times. And they have access to all of these assets at lower prices. And they pick up a huge windfall and make themselves a real bundle of money. And that's uh, certainly true in this last one of 2007, 2008, that the people who allegedly triggered it have made money. They're, they're back in business and they're paying huge billion-dollar bonuses again. So they knew what was going on. For, for someone who is listening to this and, and would find it hard to believe uh, that the, the latest recession and perhaps others were deliberately orchestrated, can you give me some examples or some evidence uh, that, that, um, these re- that there were a few insiders who had inside knowledge or anticipated that this was going to happen and then profited as a result? Yeah, they, all they have to do is go and look at the PCORA report in the United States that was uh, done under the Roosevelt administration. And uh, they can read all about how the banks manipulated the situation, how Wall Street, in effect, brought on the Great Recession, how some people knew it was going to happen, they benefited from it, and they caused all of this horrible distress worldwide and got away with it uh, scot-free. Well, then some of the people listening might have heard, might have seen the uh, documentary, An Inside Job, by Charles Ferguson. Read the current uh, mess that we're in worldwide. And uh, he proved, I think, to the satisfaction of most people who saw that documentary, that, again, a couple of the major Wall Street institutions knew that there was so much junk out there that it was going to collapse and started selling short and uh, making way for capitalizing on a situation so that they could come out the the winners as had the same kind of thing as had happened in 1929. And in this last one, about 800 million people, no, excuse me, 8 million people put out of work in the United States alone and hundreds of millions worldwide, and assets of the people of the world reduced in value by about $20 trillion. $20 trillion. You know, I remember an election when liberals lost because C.D. Howe said, what's a million? It's, well, you know, it looks like Sunday school change when you <laughs> throw the nickel in the, in the plate compared to what has gone on. And all of this happened and didn't need to happen. And yet not a single one of the people that was involved in that or of the organizations that was involved in that, no one has gone to jail. So this legalized Ponzi scheme that we have, that you say, how do we correct it? What, what is your solution? Well, the solution is to get the governments back in the business of creating money. This was uh, done by Lincoln in the United States uh, during the Civil War. And it's one of the reasons that the United States was so prosperous for so long that they didn't have this huge debt. The British are still paying interest on the money they borrowed uh, dur- during the uh, Revolutionary War. And uh, so once you get in debt, you never get out. You just keep on paying and paying and paying generation after generation. So uh, Lincoln showed the way. And... Uh, there are people in the United States that say that that's the only solution at the present time, and I agree with them. There are some people who say that's why he was assassinated. Well, that's, I, I don't know, but I certainly wouldn't doubt it. 
because the stakes are so high for, for everybody. And the stakes are high at the present time. I don't think most of your listeners would have any idea of how important this issue is. It's the second most important issue in the world, the most important issue in the world today, as you know from reading my book, The Light at the End of the Tunnel, is global warming. The most urgent is monetary reform. Because if we don't reform the financial system, the countries of the world won't have the financial flexibility to change over from an oil economy to clean energy in time to save the world from global warming or going past the point of no return. And uh, it's the way we're headed, it's game over. So give me some, some more of the mechanics in, 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 uh, in how you would change this monetary system. Well, what I'm proposing is, first of all, a massive reflation. The, if the assets worldwide were reduced by $20 trillion, I would say we have, should start with a, a reflation of about $10 trillion, and governments should print it, whatever, to get it into circulation debt-free. When you, reflation, explain what that means. Well, it just means to replace the money supply that was lost as a result of the, of the assets coming down so that, you know, if you had a, say you had a portfolio of uh, $500,000 that you were counting on to keep you in your old age, and all of a sudden it's down to three hundred, you don't feel like spending. You don't feel like giving. You just say, hey, things are tough. Don't know if they could get tougher, and they sure as heck could. Uh, then I better hang on to this and not spend. So the whole system slows down, and Keynes was right about this much, that what we need in a recession is to get more money out there so you can get people back to work and get the economies up to speed, try and get the, the system up at its maximum capacity physically. And uh, that is uh, the one point where he was absolutely, uh, absolutely right. But if you didn't Barack Obama try that, he pumped how many... Tens of seventy trillion dollars into the economy isn't that inflationary? The, what the the Fed did, he pumped the money into the banks. Well, that's different because then they have to lend it, and they have to lend it to people who are going to create jobs and not just buy assets with it, which they've been doing a lot of it. They've been buying assets cheap and benefiting from getting zero cost money, and they're going out and buying stocks and bonds and farms and other things. Uh, you know basically cost-free. And that, that doesn't solve the solution, the, the problem. The money has got to go to the people, either through tax cuts or through expenditures on infrastructure, uh, replacing all the old uh, worn-out uh, water pipes that are bursting every winter and replacing bridges that are ready to fall down and uh, building uh, better roads and filling potholes and all the things that are needing to be done. So you want you want to pump government-issued uh, debt-free money into the system? Into the system and without having to pay it back with interest. And that is the difference. All right, uh, we'll take a time out. More of my conversation with the Honorable Paul Hellyer talking bank reform here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. 
This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome back. The Honorable Paul Hellyer is uh, with us talking about money. Uh, you've sort of outlined uh, how the, uh, the system works, how the Federal Reserve uh, system works. What would you then do with the Bank of Canada? Well, the Bank of Canada, first of all, and this came up late in the election, was a little bit of a, a tiff, apparently, between the, uh, Mr. Layton and the uh, Minister of Finance over telling the Bank of Canada governor what to do. And <clears throat> unfortunately, uh, the issue was not developed because it was too late. And uh, Layton backed down. But someone, some government, has got to tell the governor what to do. And that is to come to the aid of his shareholders. He printed $75 billion to bail out the banks. Now, I know the CBC said the Canadian banks didn't need bailing out, but in fact, they were bailed out, at least to the tune of $75 billion. And uh, the, the government bought their assets, their mortgages, I think, for the most part. And uh, in the States, they call them toxic assets, and we don't know what they're worth, but we, the taxpayers, are stuck with them in order to give our banks the liquidity that they apparently thought they needed, and they, the, the governor thought they needed. So if he can, if he can pump out $75 billion to bail out the banks, he can pump out a couple hundred billion dollars to bail out the people. And this is just a, you know, an arbitrary figure. But let's say we split it between the federal government and the provincial governments. Federal government could uh, use it to pay off its deficit and uh, not have to, uh, to fire so many people. And then if the provinces, they would be able to do things that they haven't been able to do. Those that are in deficits would be able to cope with that. And uh, they could go ahead with all sorts of projects, public transportation, and, and get enough money out there that we are not taking away children's lunches and, and shutting down social services that are desperately needed. It sounds almost too good, too simple to be true. You're saying, have the government print $100 billion through the Bank of Canada, mm-hmm. or uh, the Bank of Canada loan the money to the government, and all our problems are over. It sounds well, almost too ba- good to be basically, true. Basically, yes, and it's just as simple as that. Now, there is a caveat, and that is they have to change the Bank Act and reinstate the necessity for the banks to have cash reserves because there's got to be somewhere for that cash to go. As Governor uh, Crow, I guess it was, said, who's going to hold the money? Are you going to keep it in your mattress or your refrigerator? And the answer is, Governor, the banks are going to hold it because there are going to be cash reserves and the government's going to keep increasing those cash reserves fast enough that the, that the money that the Bank of Canada prints is not uh, multiplied by the banks, that there's no multiplication factor. So if you increase the amount of debt-free money, cash, that the, the banks are, that ha- they have to hold in reserve, right. they can't leverage it as much. They can't leverage it at all. So their profits are going to go down. No. It's their, well, their profits are going to go down if, you're, if you limit their ability to lend their money 20 times, which you're going to do anyway, which you have to do. And the governments have to get regain control of the banking system and, and how much money they create, which they've lost. 
since 1974. The, the whole system has been, has been opened up to the point where the bankers are running the world and they decide how much money they're going to create and governments don't really have any say in it. If the solution and the problem is so glaringly obvious, why hasn't the media been all over this? Why don't we hear about this on the, the 6 o'clock news? Well, I don't know why we don't. I know uh, in a speech I made recently, I, I mentioned that when the uh, Fed was established in the States, that Morgan Bank decided that somebody might tumble to what was going on. So they bought uh, 25 of the most powerful newspapers in the United States, got control of them just so they could, in effect, uh, monitor what was being said about international relations and about money and that sort of thing. And you almost get the impression that the same thing uh, is going on now, because I've written several op-ed pieces on what the Bank of Canada has done on its, you know, its 100-year history and, and so on, and the, the papers won't touch them. So there's a, a mental block there. There are three things the papers won't touch. One's the extraterrestrial presence and uh, technology, the downside of globalization, which was brought on by the same, the same banking cartel are responsible for globalization so that they have more uh, opportunity to cherry pick all around the world and, uh, and money, where it comes from, what it is, and who owns it. And who... And, who should have it to use uh, when it's necessary? It sounds like a conspiracy. You mentioned uh, this uh, switch that happened in 74 uh, under Trudeau's watch. He didn't maybe even know about it. How is it that the government is not in control? Who's holding the steering wheel? Well, the government's not in control because they don't understand the system. In a recent uh, two parliaments ago, I counted up the people in the House of Commons that understood what we're talking about. There were five and none of them are in the government. None of them are in the cabinet. If they don't understand it, how do you expect the people listening to this to, to understand it? It's not a real, I mean, it's, as you've outlined, it's, it's the most important issue, the most urgent issue. But how do you make it sexy and interesting? Nobody was talking about this during the election. I know. They didn't talk, they didn't talk about any of the most important issues. They didn't talk about global warming. They didn't talk about uh, the monetary issue, which, as I say, is, uh, is important. And they, uh, they didn't talk about uh, how fast we're moving in the direction of becoming Americans. There was no real voice, of a patriotic voice for Canada. So they, were, they just ignored these things. But we're going to have to face up to them. And we're going to have to face up to this one first. And as far as learning about this is concerned, people are going to have to start reading some books and uh, and finding out about it there's some good literature and there's a there's a website www.victoryfortheworld.net uh, where they can go and uh, and get see some books that they could get their hands on and start reading my i have uh, two books out as you know the light at the end of the tunnel and uh, a survival plan for the human species and then the other one is on the economics strictly the economics, but it's, it's more interesting for people who's, who delve into these things. Uh, it's called uh, A Miracle in Waiting, Economics of Common Sense. But they have to start reading these things and pondering them and saying, hey, yeah, we've been taken to the cleaners all these years. 25 recessions and depressions 
in, since 1890 in the United States. And Einstein said a definition of insanity is to keep on doing the same thing over and over again and expect different results. Well, the results aren't different. They're the same. And after the, when the Great Depression started, what did they do? They tried to balance their budgets. They laid off people, raised taxes. What are we doing today? Same thing. Haven't learned a thing. Take me back again in 1974, because I want to, I want to, this is a pivotal moment in, in the world's history, really, when we, uh, here in Canada anyway, we abandoned the old system where we borrowed from the Bank of Canada with debt-free money. We embraced Milton Friedman. Who was Milton Friedman briefly and explain what really happened? Well, Milton Friedman was a Nobel laureate who was really uh, almost idolized. He was idolized by business because he was one of these people that says, well, you know, markets can decide. They, they're honest. They do everything right. They don't need uh, any government regulation. And he, was, he started out as a 100% cash reserve man. He learned this from his, uh, his mentors, Lloyd Mintz and Simons, of uh, the original Chicago school from 19, the 1930s. 100% bank reserve system meaning what? Mean that the banks would have to have $100 in their vaults or on deposit with the central bank for every $100 they loan. In other words, no leveraging. And he said right up until the end that he liked that system better, but he thought it was politically uh, impossible. And I agree. So what did he do? Late in his life, he said, if you can't have 100% reserves, you should have zero reserves. Talk about a flip-flop. And, you know, you have to ask about the judgment of a man who goes from one extreme to the other. And I wrote him and asked him about it. And he sent me back a letter and said that the only reason was to get government out of the banking business totally. And I thought, gee whiz, he would be turning over in his grave two years ago to see the, the federal government in the United States putting up hundreds of millions of dollars, trillions, in fact, to bail out the banking system that he was so sure could operate on its own. Just a terrible miscalculation. And he, was, he miscalculated on the cause of inflation, too, which was really responsible for the, uh, the two major recessions that we had. All right, we'll take a time out, uh, Paul, when we come back. I want to talk about, uh, I want to go back to 1935 and the, the plan of then Prime Minister Mackenzie King. What did he intend to do with the Bank of Canada? We'll find out. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show here on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. Don't go away. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind. On The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. And we are back with the Honorable Paul Hellier. You know he's the longest serving member of the Privy Council next 
to Prince Philip. We're here talking about the uh, Bank of Canada and how to reform it. In fact, how to reform the entire world financial system. When Prime Minister Mackenzie King nationalized the Bank of Canada in 1935, what was his intention in terms of the monetary system? His intention was to do what, in effect, what I'm proposing now. And he talked about it at that time. It's on the record. 100% cash uh, reserve? No, I, I don't think so. But using the Bank of Canada uh, for the benefit of the Canadian people. And he, uh, he got that from Jerry DeGeer, mayor of, uh, of Vancouver, who was a monetary expert and who wound up in the House of Commons and really pressured Mackenzie King into doing what he did. Do you think the banks have the power to prevent, let's say you were running uh, for the, uh, the leadership of the, the Liberals or the Conservatives, and this was a major policy in your platform, re, uh, basically to, to bring back the Bank of Canada to, to its original form, 36% cash reserves for the banks, what do, you, do you think the banks would have the power to prevent you from becoming prime minister? Well, it depends on... Uh, they would certainly make an effort. They would spend millions to prevent it happening. In the United States, to give you an example, the Federal Reserve last year spent $380 million in contracts with the leading economists of the country to do things for them so that, in effect, they were in their the debt of the, uh, of the Fed. And it, it's all pervasive. It goes right across the system. And then, of course, these people get elected, to get appointed to government jobs. And, uh, and so it's just one great big club, one great big family. And it, it will take a tremendous amount of effort and determination on the part of someone. Or the other way would be for the people to say, you know, en masse, and this is maybe possible with the modern methods of, uh, of communication through the Internet of getting together and saying, government of Canada or government of the United States, we want you to do thus and so, and if you don't do it, uh, watch out. We'll shut down the, the economy for a few days or we'll, we'll do something that's going to get your attention. Because we don't want the banking cartel running us anymore. We want you to do what is in our interest, not you to make us do what is in the interest of private bankers. What do the economists say? Why do the economists say you're wrong? And I'm sure you've talked to them and, they, and they've said that, that you're wrong. What do they say? Well, the, the best excuse they can come up with would be that it's inflationary. Uh, David Dodge, for example, I was at a, uh, a dinner for Alan McKechn just before he retired. And they had three Canadian economists there, including Sylvia Austrian, I forget who the other two were, who was supposed to be the cream of the land. And they were forecasting long-term unemployment. And uh, I was in the audience, and so when they came question time, I got up, took a hand mic and said, why don't we do what we did to get out of the Depression? and just have the Bank of Canada create a little money and get it in circulation and get, create some jobs and get people working and paying taxes and the, the economy moving again. And they were all, they were all shell-shocked. So none of them was willing to, to reply. So they got David Dodge, who was in the audience, to reply. 
And he said, well, Mr. Heather's solution would be inflationary. That was the best thing he could say. Well, you know, for anybody who teaches economics, that's nonsense. The old formula that they all use of, of uh, prices being the money times velocity of turnover divided by the output, the M is, is money, not government-created money or bank-created money. It is just money, period. And it doesn't matter who, whether the government creates it or the banks, as long as it isn't multiplied. It's the total money supply that's important. And right now, we haven't got enough. We want to increase it. But who's going to borrow under our system? Do you want to go out and make a, borrow a lot of money? Do you think that the federal government wants to increase its deficit? Do you think the Ontario government can increase its deficit? Do you think a business that doesn't know what's going to happen, whether the American economy is going to collapse or not, wants to spend a lot of money? Do you think people who already owe on their credit cards more than they earn in a whole year are in a position to go out and borrow more in order to get the economy up and running? Absolutely not. The system is totally unworkable, unstable, and that's the reason for all of these cycles which have never been necessary. It's just a, it is a result of a, of a you know, in my speech recently I, I said any high school student could figure out very quickly that if all the money is, re, is created as debt, that the total debt is headed always toward infinity. And there's no way to pay it off. Total insanity. You're going to be 88 this year. Why do you remain so passionate and almost fixated on this one particular issue? It's the reason I went into politics 60 years ago. Because I was a child of the Depression, as I said. I saw all this poverty and misery. And I asked my professors at university if recessions and depressions were necessary. They never gave me an adequate answer. They still can't 60 years later. The best they could say, well, is we've always had them. Get me to read economic history. Well, I wasn't interested in economic history. Well, I was interested in it, but I didn't think there was any justification that mistakes of the past were any justification for repeating them in the future. And they were predicting another depression for 1950. So I said, I've got to get in politics and try and do something about this because this isn't, we don't have to have another depression. But you're not in politics now. Well, no, but uh, I'm giving, still giving advice and still being ignored. What was it like for you as a maverick in side government when you would bring these things up with Trudeau or Pearson or Louis St. Laurent? Well, actually, I never did with, with Mr. St. Laurent uh, because the Korean War bailed us out. And uh, the depression we were going to have in 1950 didn't happen. So instead of that, we had what we call the golden years through until the early 1970s. So there was no opportunity. And by the time I really had the opportunity, uh, or the necessity was there, I was out of government. Had been out for two or three years because 1974 was three years, uh, like four years after I left government. But I did discuss it with Mr. Trudeau one-on-one later in life. And we were uh, having dinner, at least lunch, I guess, in Montreal. And we got onto the subject. We usually talked economics, and I went through my solutions and so on, and he was convinced. 
And he said, I think you should try and get a seat. And uh, you may use my name with uh, my former associates. He gave me a list. But unfortunately, there were like Coots and Davey and the people of the old guard, his old guard, who no longer had any real power. And the last thing he said uh, to me, realizing the importance of the whole thing, he said, God be with you. Did you bring up with him the fact that in 74, what had happened and he was prime minister and he didn't even know about it? No. But I knew that was true. If you had five minutes in a room with, with Prime Minister Stephen Harper, what would you say to him? I'd ask him to read one of my books and then give me another five minutes. Are you hopeful for the future? I have to be hopeful or I wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. The, the odds are, are terrible. If, you know, light at the end of the tunnel, it, it really tells you what's going on in the world today and who's pulling the strings and you read it and you say that this the world's going to hell in the handbasket. But at the end, the end I say here's the things that have to happen and if we made them happen then we could change the world and the people who don't have enough to, to eat or food to, or water to drink or over their head or whatever would be able to have it. And uh, we'd be able to keep the world from, uh, from going down the tube with global warming, which is what we've got to do in the next 10 years, which is about the cycle that we have. You mentioned it in a speech somewhere. A, a, a banker said a politician is someone who sees light at the end of the tunnel and then orders more tunnel. That's what most of them do, yes, I'm afraid. Paul, thanks so much for this. It's a pleasure. The Honorable Paul Hellyer, the author of Light at the End of the Tunnel, a survival plan for the human species. All right, we'll talk destiny versus fate with Marie Jones on the other side. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on AM 740. Stay with us. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations, what goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. All right, does fate determine our lives or do our choices make all the difference? You can't avoid it, it's written in the stars, or is life what you make it? We're all grappling with this uh, issue, and uh, 
you know, really has there ever been a satisfactory answer to this question? Are our lives predestined, sorry, predestined, let me try that again. Has there ever been an answer to that question? Are our lives predestined by fate that deals us the cards? Uh, or are we the result of our choices as we go along? Well, now, a new book by Marie Jones, one of the foremost experts on metaphysics and contemporary science, Destiny versus Choice, the scientific and spiritual evidence behind fate and free will, examines this, well, it's one of my favorite philosophical, spiritual, scientific uh, questions, and we're happy to have Marie Jones once again here on The Conspiracy Show. How are you, Marie? I'm good. Thanks for having me back. First, let's start with uh, some definitions. What do you mean by destiny? Well, to put it simply, because philosophers have taken the concept of destiny and subcategorized it uh, ad nauseum, but to put it simply, destiny is the idea that you have a predetermined path that your life should follow. Uh, and of course, you know, whether or not there's some choice mixed in with that, we can start talking about later. But it's just the idea that you came here with a blueprint, so to speak, possibly before you were born, you worked it out with other souls, with your with God, your higher power, whatever. But you just came here with a plan. And and that would presuppose, obviously, a uh, some sort of a, a spiritual or supernatural component if uh, if there is a plan this universe, this machine had to be set in motion, whether you're a deist or a Christian, you have to believe that there's this higher power that's setting us on this destiny, this this path. Exactly. Something came up with the blueprint. <laughs> some, some master uh, architect designed that plan for you. And that's where everything gets a little tricky, because we've got the philosophical argument, you've got the religious argument, but there's a lot of uh, what I like to call circumstantial evidence of a predeterminism, even in science. So when that comes into the picture, you've got scientists having to say, hmm, you know, is there an intelligent design to all of this? The problem is, is that intelligent design doesn't always have to be a religious entity. I think sometimes we humanize the word intelligence when it could be something that we can't even describe. We don't even have an awareness of it. It could be pure consciousness or what have you, but absolutely if you believe in destiny, you sort of, it's a given that you believe something or someone came up with that plan for you. Actually, even as, as, as I'm speaking, it just uh, occurred to me that there is, because as you pointed out, you know, there are these subcategories. There is even a category uh, about destiny that would preclude or wouldn't necessarily include a supernatural power. And that is, you know, we, we are all certain certainly prisoners to a certain extent of our of a biological determinism uh, right, for, for right. example you know uh, if my father was short my mother was short my grandparents great-grandparents were short my destiny probably is to live life um, as a, a height challenged individual unless there's somewhere genetic anomaly in there <laughs> one, <laughs> yeah, one can only pray was, <laughs> and and genetics and DNA and inherited inherited traits the nature versus nurture, all of that stuff. Yeah, definitely our uh, physicality is where we see a lot of this idea that we come in with a plan. We come in with a genetic plan based upon our parents, based upon their parents, and it goes all the way back to you know the first two humans that ever made it. So all of these characteristics that we have, blue eyes, brown eyes, green eyes, you know, height, bone structure, those are things that we come in with that we really don't have a whole lot of choice. It's up to the people before us. 
Um, so yeah, definitely genetics is somewhere where you see that sense of predeterminism in a scientific sense. Yes, but obviously, I mean, when, when most of us think of, of destiny, uh, you know, we're thinking of the, the Doris Day song, Que Sera Sera, <laughs> will I, you know, will I marry well, will I... Uh, uh, yes, uh, meet my soulmate. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, so what do we mean then by, uh, how are you defining free will? Okay, again, you know, we're, I'm simplifying in the book, there's so many different ways that people have described the, the concept of freedom let alone choice and free will. But to simplify it, free will is the idea that we are acting of our own volition. We are making choices, sometimes you know, consciously, sometimes not so much, um, but that we're making it up as we go along. So in other words, we don't come in with any kind of blueprint. We create the blueprint based upon the choices that we make. Now, when we talk about um, a choice, and a lot of people have an issue... Uh, who believe in in uh, in God, and they might say, "How could an all-knowing, all-powerful God, that sort of sets everything in motion, also believe in in free will?" Because of God, certainly, you know, the, the notion of a Christian God is that right. you know you you must you must uh, come to Him. You must you know He's not forcing you to worship Him. That's your choice. So, how you have these two seeming contradictions? You've got within a, sort of the uh, at least the Christian uh, uh, tradition, the Western, got, tradition the Western, yes, the Western spiritual tradition, you've got destiny and free choice almost happening at the same time. How do how does one reconcile that? It, you know, it's the same argument that's that the philosophers were going through, but of course now it, it fell into our religious beliefs. And I think really, again, it is the ongoing battle between a having a belief in something higher than yourself. And also wanting to feel like as a human being, you're not a robot, you're not a zombie, you've got some choice. And if you read the Old and New Testaments, and I included some of the, the many quotes uh, in the book that lean on the side of destiny and others lean on the side of free will. And most people are just the most familiar, obviously, with the story of Christ. And even Christ, in a sense, had the uh, choice as to whether or not he was going to fulfill his destiny and, and be crucified and become this, uh, you know, figure that he did, this religious figure that he did. So, yeah, we see the argument in in all religions. There are specific denominations that get very extremist, though, about either, uh, you know, everything is faded and you have absolutely no control. They tend to be the more fundamentalist denominations. Right, right, uh, right. In other words, you know, forget it. You have no choice. You Blame the devil, blame God. You know, everything that you do is set in stone. And that's a very extreme way of looking at destiny and fate. And you also have atheists, you know, who ha don't have that sense of a higher power that came up with this blueprint for you. So it, there's the two extremes and there's everything in between. But what I found is that the vast majority of people, even Christians, feel like both are at play in their lives. They definitely feel like their God, the God, the Abrahamic God, has a will for them, the will of God, but that they also have the ability to resist that will, change it, deny it, go around it, you know, or align themselves with it. So in a lot of ways, um, they find a way for it to work together. And I think that if you are a Christian, you believe in it, that God has a will for you, Obviously, you're going to want to align yourself with that will. That's going to end up 
bringing you to the destiny rather than constantly resisting it your whole life and, and living a life of misery and regret. So, yeah, I found that to be the, the majority of people really fell into having both at play in their lives. Marie Jones is uh, the author of Destiny Versus Choice, the scientific and spiritual evidence behind fate and free will. And I don't, I don't know what uh, side uh, you all listening out uh, there tonight uh, uh, fall under, uh, perhaps a combination of both. I, I sort of see it as, do you remember those flow charts you used to get? If you choose uh, A, then B and C will happen. And if you choose B, then, then uh, you know, D and E will happen. So I sort of see it, I, I think there's room for both. Certainly in, in my, uh, I don't know, cosmology, whatever you want to call it, that, that if you look at it as sort of branches of a tree, but there is sort of this final... Uh, I mean, I do believe in a supernatural power, uh, but I think, you know, within, I think there's some wiggle room there. I think there is a, a, a great <laughs> deal of, yes, a great deal of free choice, but it's like, if you look at the supernatural power as someone who's um, extraterrestrial, uh, in, uh, you know, hyperdimensional, and he's he's existing outside time and space, and he's sort of seeing the entire parade from above. So he sees the beginning, right. the middle, and the end. We're stuck here on the ground in the middle of the parade. So we have this, I don't know if I would call it an illusion of free choice. I mean, for all intents and purposes, we feel we are making choices, except the supernatural power is anticipating every one. And it's like saying, aha, I knew he was going to do that. Aha, I knew he was going to do that. (laughs) It's very frustrating to think that possibly every single choice you made has been figured out beforehand. And And people will argue with me and they'll say, well, no, I know that I'm making a choice. I know that I'm making a choice based on free will. And I say, well, how can you know? You do not know with 100% certainty that every choice you make that you think is of your own volition wasn't pre-planned. And I'm not saying that because I necessarily believe that, but this is why this argument has been going on for thousands of years and will continue. The problem is if we don't know what that first cause was, God, source, whatever you want to call it, that, that intelligence that created the design that we all live amidst, if we don't know first cause, None of the effects can really be fully explained. So you've got this chain of cause and effect that we're all involved in, and yet without knowing the very first cause and what its agenda might have been, the motivation for creating life or creating each of us, yeah, we can't with 100% certainty say either way. It's all free choice or it's all destiny. So we really have to go on faith. I guess, and also how it feels to us in our individual lives, you know, what we feel like is happening in our own lives. Well, you know, based on the, uh, uh, you know, the look at the cover of the book and you've got the, uh, the dice and you've got the, uh, the flip of the coin, uh, but ultimately <laughs> this type of conversation leads us ultimately into the big questions, uh, intelligent design and, and, and these things, and we'll get into that when we come back. What does science have to say about destiny and free right. will? Marie Jones, author of Destiny Versus Choice, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. 
So why are you up? 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Marie Jones is with us, author of Destiny Versus Choice, the scientific and spiritual evidence behind fate and free will. So where does science enter at getting on this conversation, Marie? Well, we'll start with the more cosmic because there's a cosmic element and then a human element. Um, but in a cosmic sense, if we look at the universe itself, how creation, we look at something like the Big Bang and how once the universe came into being, there's, there are laws of physics and thermodynamics. So there are physical laws that govern the creation of planets, stars, solar systems, the chemical balances that created life on this planet. So it appears that there is some kind of plan, some kind of method to the madness, to the creation of our universe. It's out of our control. We have no choice over it, or at least as we know. If a lot of people will say, well, there's cosmic consciousness, but we're just looking at what we know and what we, uh, what science tells us. So, you know, we've got all these different laws that say gravity behaves this way, electromagnetism behaves this way, you've got the strong and weak nuclear forces doing this, you've got mathematical ratios that explain uh, certain balances between chemicals that create stars, and all of that seems, it's very intricate, very sophisticated, and it seems very planned out. Now, on the other hand, if you go to the quantum world, where everything is invisible that you know the particulate level it's completely the opposite quantum physics is based on probability potentiality you've got virtual particles popping in and out of existence you've got the observer effect where the act of observation and measurement literally puts uh, takes a particle out of waveform and gives it a, a position so in other words that seems to be all choice is it all the choice of the observer are we observing, quote-unquote, reality into existence? So now here's this big battle between the cosmic and the quantum when it comes to destiny and choice. If we go to human beings, again, you know, we we're talking about genetics, and it seems like our bodies come pre-planned. But our behavior, our personality, our quirks, uh, what we love to do, what makes us laugh, all of that stuff, you know, it's nature versus nurture. All of that stuff seems to be a product of perhaps our environment, our social setting, uh, family, our family of origin, our peers, etc. So now we've got what's happening on the cosmic and quantum level also happening on the human scale. We've got the destiny aspect of genetics. We've got the free will aspect of behavior and personality. Do you think that the, the, the quantum uh, aspect... Does that argue, does that make a, a stronger case for uh, a, a, a supernatural um, or spiritual realm? You know, I think they both do. And that's, this is what's so exciting. Okay, in the cosmic sense, you cannot look at all these laws and these mathematical ratios that govern everything that's going on in, in, on the cosmic scale and think, this is random. This is chaos. There's a wonderful book by Sir Martin Rees, the Royal Astronomer of Great Britain, uh, called Just Six Numbers. And uh, my dad, who's a geophysicist, turned me on to this book years ago. And it's about the mathematical basis for the laws of the universe and how unbelievably intricate they are. And if they were to be tweaked ever so slightly, uh, more or less than what they are, we wouldn't be here. 
So when you think about that, you think there has got to be a master mathematician behind the, the creation of the universe. How could it possibly be that sophisticated and intricate? And at the quantum level, it seems like we have a lot of godly power if, in fact, our act of observation is assisting us in creating, co-creating reality, reality. But it does also suggest and intelligence as well, because all of that stuff has to come from somewhere. And many people believe it comes from the zero-point field or the akasha, the ether. There's all different uh, names for this sort of field of all possibility. So they both have a supernatural or intelligent design element to them. And yet they both seem so at odds and that one seems like it's so fixed and the other one seems so fluid. We had the... Um... The uh, the experiments uh, at uh, Stanford University regarding the the, the power of intention. Yes, uh, and and I'm I'm wondering if you could explain what what happened there and and what that says about destiny versus free will. This is where it gets a little tough, and again, this is sort of in alignment with uh, the idea of the observer effect. Is that the intention, which is really nothing more than intensely focused thought towards a very particular goal, especially collective intention, where you have more than one person intending or focusing on that goal, that it actually can create, uh, you know, I mean, it could actually affect things. There were experiments done through the peer laboratory um, using what are called eggs. There are these little black boxes, random event generators, and they would measure zeros and ones. And depending on who was focusing on them, you could flip more zeros or more ones than what might come out randomly. And what they found is that before um, some very profound, powerful world events like the, the death of Princess Diana or 9-11, terrorist attacks, uh, there would be more zeros or more ones than normal because people were focused collectively on one thought, the thought being trauma, sadness, despair, what have you. Intention, the law of attraction, which really is what most people think of when they hear the word intention, is the idea that we are observing our reality. We are creating our reality based upon the primary focus of our thoughts and our uh, intention. So now that speaks to total free choice. And yet I have to stop these people and say, well, hold on, because you still have to choose from a blueprint or a predetermined field of possibility from which you are creating with your intention. So in other words, you know, that field may already be there set in stone. Right. But we have the choice as to what we want to take out of the field. Uh, the, the power of atten uh, intention, uh, the laws of attraction, again, coming mm -hmm. back to a, more, a religious context, some would call that prayer. Uh, right, and, right. and there have well, been interesting studies right. on, on uh, the efficacy of, of prayer in, in uh, aiding the healing process as well. Right. Even distant, uh, long distance prayer. I mean, some of the studies have worked and some haven't. And, you know, scientists will say, oh, well, that just disproves it. But no, it really doesn't because what you're dealing with is the power of the intention of the particular individuals that are involved in the study. And, you know, granted, not everybody has a very strong ability to focus their thought. I mean, my gosh, you know, we're all distracted by so many things in our lives, how often do we really sharpen our focus? So if you can imagine, you know, having to do that as part of a laboratory study, not everybody's going to have the same success. Um, but what's really interesting is that even praying for somebody you don't know, 
you know, praying for someone 5,000 miles away, there, there is a lot of research that shows that it works. The thing about prayer is most people beg when they pray. And what they found is when the prayer is more an intention or a declaration of healing, that's when it worked. So in other words, instead of having 50 people say, oh, please, God, please, we want Mary Smith to get better, they had these people declare, Mary Smith is fully healed, where the prayer, the intention has power. It has a, a present power rather than a, oh, please, which implies hope, which implies doubt, which implies the idea that you don't think it's really going to happen. So yeah, intention gets really tricky, but if you have enough people really focused on, I mean, look at 2012, okay? Right. If enough right. people are thinking something's going to happen, something's going to shift, and they focus on it, I'm really curious to see what happens. Sure. I mean, if you look at it uh, again uh, at, at a quantum uh, level, uh, if if events uh, can be uh, sort of reduced to a, a waveform, right. and with the power of intention, if we are able to collapse uh, or create waveforms, then we are in fact creating our future. Exactly, and, and a lot of these, yeah, a lot of these physicists that are really, you know, starting to actually sound more metaphysical than scientific, which I think is wonderful, because I think they're realizing that, you know, quantum physics brings the two worlds together. Uh, the idea that your consciousness determines what you will collapse in that, you know, what wave function you will choose to collapse. So if you have a higher level of consciousness, you're going to choose, you're going to intend different things than someone with a much lower level of consciousness, someone with a, a, a consciousness of fear or lack or despair. So it, it gets into a lot of real metaphysical ground, but it's all based on this scientific concept of collapsing the wave function. All right, uh, Marie, uh, sit tight. We'll come back. And um, uh, we, 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 no discussion on uh, destiny versus free will would be complete without sort of approaching it from an astrological uh, standpoint. And we'll do that. On the other side, we're talking about uh, destiny versus choice with Marie Jones. She's uh, previously best-selling author of The Deja Vu Enigma, 1111, The Time Prompt Phenomenon, and 2013, The End of Days, or A New Beginning, now out with a brand new one, as I say, Destiny versus Choice. And I love this little blurb on the on the uh, the back cover. Fate versus free will. You decide. <laughs> That's <laughs> like a battle. <laughs> back with more here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Since the day we are born, we're bombarded with contradictory claims that our lives are predetest... Oh, I'm having trouble with that word. Predestined. Sorry, take two. Since the day we are born, we are bombarded with the contradictory claims that our lives are predestined and that fate deals us the cards we must play, or that our lives are the results of our choices and that we shape it as we go along. We're discussing a destiny versus choice with the author, Marie Jones. And uh, Marie, what does uh, astrology... Uh, say about fate and free will? 
it depends on the astrologer, believe it or not. Uh, and, and, you know, this is the biggest area that people want to talk about when we talk about destiny and choices. Everybody has their tarot read and they get their palms read. They love to look in the back of TV guides, see what their horoscope is for the week. Um, with astrology, what's interesting is it really does run the, to, you know, the extreme of astrologers that will tell you that the reading that they give you, uh, you know, telling you where the star and the stars and the moon, the sun and the nodes and everything were when you were born is tells you that your destiny is set in stone, that you have to operate within this structure that they give you. But there are other astrologers, especially some of the ones that I talk to, that are much more flexible. What they're saying is this is more of an energy blueprint. You have a choice as to whether you are going to align with these uh, concepts or characteristics. You, you don't have to. Some uh, astrologers will say this is a suggestion based upon what the stars said. It may lead you towards one destiny if you choose to not accept that you'll end up with a different one so there actually was quite a bit of different opinion based upon the astrologer um, most of the ones that i talked to were much more flexible and i even had my reading done while i was writing the books i could see for myself and i talked to the gal afterwards i said you know some of this stuff makes sense and some doesn't and she said well some of it you will resonate with and some you won't and it's up to you to decide what it is that you're going to align yourself with and move forward with. And you take the, take what works and you leave behind what doesn't. And I found that to be kind of interesting. It was also the case with the people I talked to um, who read tarot, rune stones, palm reading. So again, you've got the same extremes that we seem to find in the argument in philosophy and religion and science. You've got those that believe, look, I'm reading your runes, honey, and this is it. You're going to meet this guy next Tuesday, and if you don't marry him, you're never going to meet another guy again. And then there's others that will say, this is a suggestion that you need to be open to love next week. And you can take that and run with it or, or leave it behind. Well, I mean, uh, uh, if if the legends are true, Adolf Hitler took it and ran with it. He, I mean, he bat he had a, a, an astrologer on on staff uh, and and planned his battles accordingly. Uh, 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 not to draw any parallels, Nancy Reagan uh, <laughs> was, would uh, uh, consult obviously and and uh, and, and schedule Ronnie's um, many of his plans according I, to oh, the, the the signs. Uh, I, yeah, what, I mean. Where do you fall in? I mean, I haven't asked you this, but where do you <laughs> fall in all this? Destiny or free choice? Well, okay. When I started writing the book, I really, really felt like I was right smack in the middle. And that is just based upon my own life experience. So I've always felt I had a destiny. I was one of these people that always knew since the age of two, I probably came tumbling out of the womb knowing that I was going to be a writer. And that was with me through my whole life. I knew that was my path, my destiny. The choices that I made that aligned with that got me further towards that goal. The choices that I made that were not so good caused great suffering, you know, financially or lost opportunities. But in researching and writing the book, what I came to realize is that for me personally, I lean towards destiny, but with an incredible amount of choice as to whether or not you will achieve that destiny. So for example, say your destiny is nothing more than to go to Hawaii. Now you can decide when to go. You can decide how to get there, boat, plane, whatever, jet ski. You can decide who to go with. You can also decide not to go. 
So in other words, you can have a blueprint for your life that you may have designed before you came here with your higher guides that may have been designed for you. And that's a whole other argument. Um, but it's still up to you as to whether or not you're going to, to fulfill it. And I think one of the reasons why so many people are so miserable and suffer from so much depression, anxiety, and all these different diseases is because they're not living an authentic life. And destiny really can mean nothing more than being authentic to your gifts, your talents, the calling that you feel inside of you that you're compelled to, to work toward. Um, it can be nothing more than that, just being authentic. And yet how many people do you know honestly live an authentic life? That's an excellent point. So in, in other words, even if you don't fulfill your destiny, that doesn't negate that that was the point that that was your destiny. You, it was simply unfulfilled. Right. And I think you could still have a pretty good life, but I think you're going to die with a, a sense of regret, a sense of not quite fulfilling your purpose. Uh, what I love are near-death experience stories because you hear, you know, the same repeated patterns over and over again with millions of people that have had these experiences. And a lot of them will say, you know, that I was told to go back because I hadn't fulfilled my destiny or I hadn't finished my purpose. I had to go back. I didn't want to go back, but they made me go back. So that suggests that there there is a, a plan. There is a blueprint. Your life has a, tra a trajectory and you're not really going to die until you have fulfilled it. And a lot of people will say, well, why do, you know, some people die so young and children die and, and uh, people die in these terrorist attacks? We don't know if, in fact, that was their destiny. We do not know that. So from this side, we're seeing the smaller picture. We don't have the ability to see the bigger picture of what may be going on with every person's life. Those lives may have been all very sophisticatedly pre-planned down to the most minute detail. And dying young may have been a part of that. Yes, I mean, if there is this this big picture and there is this, you know, master of the universe or this giant uh, uh, puzzle maker in the sky, uh, then, you know, one tiny piece of that puzzle, I, I remember buying my wife the um, this uh, Vincent Van Gogh, it's a portrait of Van Gogh, uh, this puzzle, and it's, I don't know, it's something like 5,000 pieces in this puzzle, and each uh, piece of the puzzle is just a tiny, I mean, there's no clue, you know, as to where that piece, you don't see like, oh, okay, there's the eye, I'm going to hook it up with the eyebrow. There's none of that. I mean, it's such intricate detail. Mm -hmm. uh, and and so, if I'm that little piece of that puzzle, my destiny could be something so insignificant uh, as right. to introduce... Let's say I introduce casually my, my technical producer, Griffin March, uh, to some, uh, somebody who comes into the office, and then that, that relationship spawns another relationship that leads to something else and something else. That may have been my destiny, and everything else right. is, uh, you know, is gravy. Well, you're bringing up a really good point, because there are a lot of people that say, you know, I talk to so many people, because I love this subject matter. They say, well, I don't feel like I'm supposed to be a big movie star or a, a Donald Trump it's like, well, wait, 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 wait. Destiny does not mean that, you know, we're talking about this big glamorous goal. Not everybody is going to be Gandhi. Not everybody is going to be president. 
sometimes a destiny can be nothing more than overcoming challenges that you have to learning how to love yourself, okay? Sometimes destiny can be being the very best parent you can to your child who's going to go on to become a world leader one day. Sometimes destiny can be nothing more than you inventing a small object that makes a lot of people's lives more comfortable. It doesn't have to be glamorous. I think people have this weird um, idea that, well, if I don't have a great purpose to be an Olympic athlete or a movie star, then I really don't have a destiny. And that is just not true. Like you said, your destiny could be to inter- introduce two people to each other who then do, you know, who knows what, <laughs> or find love. I mean, just having people find real love can be a destiny. Right. Uh, I mean, if you think mm-hmm. of how, uh, you know, interconnected we all are and how one Let's say just even a smile. Let's say someone you're a check. You're working at checkout at uh, at Safeway. Someone comes in that day who's having a horrible day, and one smile, one random, seemingly random smile from a checkout person, turns that person's life around just enough so that he doesn't go home, kick the dog, maybe hit his wife. Exactly. Uh, and then that means. Uh, you know, I don't know where it could go. The possibilities are endless, but that could be that person's destiny. They smiled Absolutely. at a stranger. You say, and and you know, there's a story in the book. She's actually one of my very closest friends named Ginger, who was going to commit suicide when she was younger. And she wrote the story very, uh, you know, I was very thrilled that she was open enough to have me uh, put the story in here. She was thinking about committing suicide and she got a phone call from a guy that she had, you know, become friends with, but hadn't heard from for a while, right at the moment that she was going to make that choice. And that phone call saved her life. And you just don't know, you, you know, you, somebody looks distressed, you stop and help them. And you find out later that because you helped them, you gave them hope, you know, where they were thinking about there was no hope to their life. You just don't know how we are all interconnected. Our destinies are interconnected and how one simple act that you take could result in, it's like the the pebble in the pond and all the ripples that go out. Exactly. All right, we'll come back, and uh, I want to talk about reincarnation and karma, one of my favorite John Lennon songs, Instant Karma's Gonna Get You. We'll do all that uh, on the other side. Destiny versus Choice with Marie Jones right here on The Conspiracy Show, AM 740. When in doubt... Blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Destiny versus Choice, the new book by Marie Jones. It examines the philosophical, spiritual, and scientific evidence for both claims and shows us how we can live better, more fulfilling lives no matter which side ultimately wins the debate. Um, 
Marie, we, you were talking earlier about, you know, that unfulfilled uh, a destiny, how unless we, f we, uh, we find it and fulfill it, uh, we don't really live to our, our true potential or a fulfilled life. Uh, right. I'm wondering then the, uh, the purpose of reincarnation, whether that might be, uh, you know, just to keep carnating until, incarnating until we get it right. It, what what <laughs> right. do the various, the various religious uh, <clears throat> traditions that believe in reincarnation, what do they say about destiny and free will? Well, it's really an Eastern concept, although we know Western traditions believe in reincarnation. You know, it may have been cut out of the Bible, but it's definitely present in the teachings. The idea that we don't just come here once. It's not just a one-shot deal, which to me really doesn't make sense if you think about it, that whatever created us would just throw us down here to go through everything we go through for nothing. There's no purpose. There's no point. So the idea is that we... We evolve, our soul evolves over many, many, many incarnations, and we hopefully learn certain lessons. We hopefully advance along the wheel of karma. Karma is nothing more than cause and effect. It's not fate. It's very changeable. It's based upon actions, thoughts, words, deeds. Um, there is a, a, a Buddhist belief that also embraces environmental uh, effects. So in other words, the environment that you're born into can affect your karma. So again, it's not... Uh, it's not a set in stone thing. You create your karma as you go along. But if you choose good karma, good actions, good behaviors, good thoughts, good deeds, in the next incarnation, you get to come back a little higher up the wheel. <laughs> the goal, of course, is to get off the wheel of karma and experience what's called samsara or liberation or, you know, just bliss, where you no longer have to keep coming back and doing it over and over again. And I think we kind of all feel like that makes more sense than just coming here for a one-shot deal and learning all these things and experiencing joy and love and hate and pain and suffering for nothing. That, you know, when we die, that's it. We're going to black out and it's all over. Uh, and again, those near-death experiences really do suggest to us that we indeed go on. There is um, uh, that old saying, you know, we are our choices. And if you look at that in terms of karma... Um, you know, the choices we make, and choice, uh, obviously, uh, meaning free will, then we have, the free will is, our, our choices, our free will is what creates the karma. But then, when we leave one body, we take, we take that karma with us, and that karma, a collection of our free will, actually helps form our destiny for the next life. So it's like, exactly. in, inside the body, we have free choice. But outside mm -hmm. the body, when we exist outside the body, um, sort of looking down and choose, okay, th these will be your parents, uh, right. and so and forth. That, th that it's, yeah. it's called destiny. Outside the body, mm -hmm. it's destiny. Inside the body, it's free will. Does that make any sense? It does. It absolutely does. And it's also interesting that we can have an individual destiny for each life, but also a grand destiny for the evolution of our soul. So we've we got two things going on at once here. Um, if you follow these beliefs, but absolutely. And, you know, karma, a lot of people just refer to karma as punishment. And we, we, we in the West tend to use it that way. Ooh, karma's going to get you. But it can be really good stuff, too. I mean, it is really just the accumulation of choices and behaviors and actions and thoughts that you've made, the cause and effect, and also what you've learned from them. So hopefully you're always advancing higher along that wheel of karma with the, the goal of getting off of the wheel completely. 
What does that, you know, you see these, these horrific images of um, uh, war-torn, uh, let's say, Africa or the famine yeah. in, in Africa, and you see a child there that's, that's suffering. Yeah. And this, this discussion always comes up, whether you're talking about, uh, uh, you know, uh, the spiritual discussion, uh, you know, how could an all-loving, compassionate God allow suffering? Uh, but even from, in, in sort of the context of this discussion, what does that mean in terms of karma and reincarnation? What does it mean about that individual that we see on the TV that's, you know, that's suffering? You know, it really depends on how you look at reincarnation and karma. Some people will say, well, that child's suffering because in the past life they were a serial killer. So now they're paying the price. But at the same time, there's another school of thought that would say that child is suffering because that soul chose to come into this incarnation and suffer as a child to learn to teach others compassion hope whatever so it really depends on the attitude that you come at it with it can be something very negative or it can actually be something positive now we see it automatically as being a negative and this is the strange thing about suffering is that we look at suffering and we automatically label it as being bad and of course i mean that comes from our our compassion and our empathy but we don't know the bigger picture. What if all of this was a, a great lesson that so many people were involved in and needed to learn? And this particular person chose to come into this uh, world as Hitler and kill a whole lot of people who also chose to come in and be victims. And all of them had the, and, and I'm not saying that I necessarily believe this, but all of them had a part to play in this great drama that was intended to collectively teach us, to individually teach each other, to teach the, the individual souls involved. So we don't see that bigger picture. And that makes it really hard because then we have to kind of go on faith, religious belief, uh, what makes sense to us. Right, right. How else has, has um, fate uh, or free will played a role in, in your own life, professionally or personally? I can, well, per, personally, especially. I mean, I I gotta say, I always tell people, listen to your gut, okay? If anything in your body is linked to destiny, it's probably your gut. Intuition as well. Um, but I think that when we when we have goals, whether it's to be, become happily married or have a family or pursue a, a calling that we feel very, you know, compelled towards a dream, whatever. When we make the right choices, we feel light. We feel empowered. When we make the wrong choices, we feel heavy and disempowered. And I am living proof of that because I know from experience, I've been around four decades, I'm in my 40s. That when I have made choices that have gone against, um, you know, the, the red flags or the tight gut that was saying, no, 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 don't do that. That's a bad choice. I've paid the price for it. I've paid emotionally. I've paid spiritually. I've paid financially, maybe even physically by getting sick. Um, but the times that I made choices that aligned with what I felt inside that was my trajectory for my life. I felt that forward momentum. I, I was excited. I was empowered. Now, that's not to say that everything from there on out is going to be perfect. But when you have that sense of empowerment that you're on the right path, obstacles become so much smaller than they would appear to be when you're on the wrong path. Well, intuition, uh, some, some call it, 
But so, but so what do you think intuition actually is? I mean, is it happening at a cellular level? Uh, what is intuition? My feeling it's really higher wisdom. And if you're an atheist, you can still have intuition because you could say that higher wisdom comes from the part of you that is, uh, you know, the subconscious is much more aware of its environment, what's going on, than we are consciously. We're so distracted um, by what we see. We don't often pick up on cues that our subconscious does. If you're a religious person, you might say it's God whispering to you, the universe, a higher uh, power, an angel, a guardian angel, a spirit guide. I've had people say uh, when I feel the whisper of intuition, I know it's a dead relative that is guiding me towards uh, where I should be going or what I should be doing. And I, you know, if you don't want to buy into the religious sense, again, it really could be that higher self that we all have that higher part of our consciousness that is tuned into everything around us when our waking state is more distracted by the survival-based stuff that's right in front of us. You know, it's interesting if you if you step back and start to pay attention, uh, because most of us, you know, our, our daily uh, events, the people that come in and out of our lives, the things that happen to us on a daily basis just sort of wash over us. Um, but it, there was that movie with, uh, I think it was Gwyneth Paltrow, I think it was called Sliding oh, yeah. Doors. Uh-huh. I've and, never seen People keep yelling at me. How could you not have seen this movie? <laughs> well, it, it, I mean, it is. It's very apropos for, for our discussion because uh, right. uh, the, the the premise for those who haven't seen it is she gets on the subway, mm-hmm. and because she gets on a subway, she makes she makes the train. She gets mm-hmm. uh, uh, she gets home at a certain time. Had she missed the train, she would have been a little bit late. But because she gets home on time, she catches her her boyfriend. I think it is having an affair, and then right. then the, the the film sort of backs up and it shows you what would have happened had she missed that train. Well, that happens in all of our our lives mm-hmm. every day. There's an accident in front of you, so you're delayed by three minutes. What would have happened had you been down the road three minutes further? You know, these are all. I guess that that that's sort of, uh, in a sense, is that free will or is that destiny? I I, I don't know, but um, it happens to us every single day, but we just don't pay attention to it. Exactly, and that's uh, similar to the stories that we heard at nine eleven of people that said they felt compelled not to go to work that day downtown or not to get on one of those flights. And you know, I think we all get those signals, but we, I, I think we've just been so ingrained to not listen to them anymore. We're so distracted by technology and, oh, my gosh, I mean, you know, you've got your cell phone in one ear, you're looking at your iPad with this hand, and we're so distracted that when those little whispers of intuition and guidance say, don't go down that road, something bad's going to happen, we don't hear it. So our destiny could be whispering us, go here, go there, go here. We don't hear it, and we end up on a different trajectory, not necessarily the one we're supposed to be on. Now, granted, you could come back around and get back on your path, but you're going to do it the hard way. Um, and that- sure. Sometimes it's a little voice, but sometimes it's it's something grabbing us by the collar and, and forcing yeah. <laughs> our hand, like the, you know, like the car accident that makes us three minutes late or right, um, right. something like that. So there, I don't know. Something's at play there, but we just we simply have to pay attention. Uh, we'll uh, come back and uh, a few more questions remain for Marie Jones, author of Destiny Versus Choice here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zuma Radio, AM 740. 
This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. And Marie Jones uh, stays with us as we discuss destiny versus choice, the scientific and spiritual evidence behind fate and free will. Uh, sometime during that last segment, Marie, that we, we were talking about uh, technology, and I'm wondering the the impact that ha- that technology has had, or will have, or continue to have, on this whole discussion of of um, destiny versus choice. Again, uh, a lot of my references tend to be movies. I guess I spent too much time watching television <laughs> as a child and beyond. But uh, there was a movie. I'm not sure if it was Gattaca or, but there was um, this. We had arrived at a certain point in our future where the powers that be were able to determine in infancy who would be what. And so you would be tracked down uh, before, for example, you had even committed a crime because they knew you were going to right. commit a crime. It was with Tom Cruise, wasn't it? No, I have, didn't see it, but I heard about it. Yes. I, was, was that Gattaca? Uh, no. Not Gattaca. That was Halle Berry, and that was something different. But. Oh my gosh! I know what you're talking about. Oh, Griffin yeah, is trying had to whisper the to me. Thought police, or, or the yeah. police that were that would know ahead of time whether you were a criminal. Yeah, right. I I know, and it, that movie got great buzz because of that plot line. Right, and and now there's a, there's another there's a TV show Minority report. <laughs> That's right, the Minority Report. Thank you. I mean, you know, that it's science fiction now, but y- you look at um, these uh, surveillance cameras are developing in airports where they can base, they, based on your, the, the way you walk, your facial expressions, whether or not you're likely to commit some sort of a terrorist act. Uh, it's, 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 it's eerily, uh, you know, a, an eerie parallel to the minority report. It's almost like saying that, uh, you know, with technology, we are able to determine one's one's destiny and that's that's a scary thought it is and the funny thing is is right when i was turning the book in and i i didn't have time to really uh include a whole lot of the research because it literally had just come out in one of the psychology journals that um, there was some studies done there was some research done that showed that certain behaviors are not uh, that that are actually genetic are actually inherited we thought there were choices we thought that violence and uh, depression and things like that, that there was some element of choice. And what these uh, researchers found was that there are are genetic elements to a propensity for violence or depression or anxiety or uh, schizophrenia, what have you. So what that suggests is that we may come into this world, not just with a physical blueprint, but a behavioral one as well. We may not necessarily be as free as we thought we were, um, but I think that that's, you know, technology is good in that it, in terms of destiny and choice, my gosh, it opens up the whole world to you. If you feel you have a destiny, you have a whole lot of choices now because of technology as to being able to get there. But I also think it provides an unbelievable intrusion on privacy, like you just said, and a massive, massive distraction that uh, for a whole lot of people, I think, drowns out the voice of destiny and the ability to make the best choice because now you've got all this new influence coming at you from technology. The choices that you're making may not really be your own anymore. It, it, it <laughs> also really muddies the water for the, you know, for the law and order types uh, that, that um, you know, uh, 
want to hang them high and uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, because uh, you know they, they they we must we must be responsible for our own actions and 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 so forth and I certainly buy into that to a large measure uh, but this whole discussion of you know criminal responsibility and all of these things that that also weighs heavily into this discussion as well doesn't it it does, it does. and again we're learning more now that some behaviors and I don't you know I don't want to say that it excuses anybody uh, but it may in some cases be a genetic component that the person couldn't have fought, that it was something that was inherent, that they were going to end up doing no matter how much nurturing they got. Um, you know, this, the, this research is still really fresh. It's still really new. It's just a little bit scary, though, to think that that might be the case, that you can have people out there with a propensity for violence that cannot be stopped with therapy or, or you know, even medications or um, they, there's just no way to stop these people. We always want to feel like we have some control over society and we may not have some control over those elements. They and may be genetic. Sure. They may be part of the brain. Right. You know? Or in the larger the, the, the larger picture, if, you know, there is this destiny and uh, that, that individual tried to skirt it as, as, as best they could, but ultimately, right. eventually, you know, they ended up in the uh, the crowbar hotel because that was their destiny and uh, try as they might they couldn't they couldn't fight it i mean what do you what do you do with that person i mean how do you how do you condemn that person right and you know it's kind of similar if you think about it to someone who's born into the world with a very severe disability or a very severe um, mental or learning disorder and there are so many people that overcome i mean they have to work really really hard to overcome those challenges that they came into the world with in a genetic sense. So I'm wondering if, you know, we can look at the behavioral aspect the same way. If you come into the world with a genetic predisposition for being a serial killer, you know, is there a way that you can, as an individual, overcome those urges? Um, and how can we help people to do that? I think it's probably going to end up being a whole new realm of psychology, dealing with genetic behavior components rather than, you know, the typical therapy of, oh, you had a bad childhood and this led to that. And, you know, now we got to deal with something that is really inherent in the person, maybe a little bit harder to fight. I guess what, what I was also getting at is maybe, you know, again, going back to that, that, that giant gi the jigsaw puzzle, that that was ultimately that person's yeah. destiny. Because if they didn't go to jail and little Jimmy didn't grow up without a father, he wouldn't have become... Uh, the, the the person that he that he was absolutely and we, again we don't know first cause we don't know the motivation we don't know the big blueprint we see the little puzzle pieces we judge them mm. as being good or bad and yet like you said it could be a part of this huge puzzle this huge bigger picture that makes total sense when you see it from that perspective yeah, and, I mean, we need the Mother Teresas, but in a very strange way, and it, and it sounds bizarre to say, we need the serial killers, too. Uh, you know, I, it's funny because I agree with that. I don't think you can know love until you know hate. I don't think you can know light until you know darkness. Yeah, you hear people say, oh, all we need is love. Well, no, you wouldn't know what love was unless you had the opposite, unless you have had something to reference it against. Uh, we need suffering because we need to learn compassion. We need despair because we need to learn hope. So, yeah, I think sometimes there's a little bit of a, you know, too much optimism when we want to get rid of all of the negative aspects of what it means to be a human being. And um, I don't think it would help us evolve if we were to do that. 
and there wouldn't there wouldn't be a Mother Teresa if there wasn't the you know the abject poverty, absolutely. the slums, and the misery in the world. So exactly, yeah, you're absolutely right. There wouldn't be a Gandhi had there not been you know millions of people that wanted to break out of the British rule. And it, absolutely, absolutely critical point there. Marie Jones is with us, author of Destiny versus Choice. I uh, on this program over the years have talked to a great. A number of uh, psychics or clairvoyants, remote viewers, and mm-hmm. uh, you know the idea of remote viewers literally transcending space and time, going uh, being able to view events and, and right. objects at a distance, sometimes in the past, sometimes even in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if this is an area that you explored at all, but uh, when when a remote viewer or a clairvoyant is able to perceive a future event, what does that say about destiny and, and, and free will? Well, I would think that that would strongly suggest that there is a hidden, implicate order of uh, reality. David Bohm, you know, of course, called it the implicate order. Uh, David Bohm, the physicist. And Carl Jung referred to it as the collective unconscious. There is that field of information that we don't see, and yet from it, all cause springs forth. We see the effects of it. So a remote viewer is tapping into information in that field. Past, present, future, it's all there. Um, but what's interesting about some psychics, and, and especially people who uh, prophesize, is that you'll have people prophesize, and they may not come true, the prophecies. Or a psychic may say, I see something happening to you in the future, may not come true. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't see what they saw. If we look at this whole idea now of the multiverse, they may have seen a potential outcome in a particular universe. They may have seen the potential outcome in this universe, except when a different choice was made, it sprung off into another universe where that actual outcome happens. Now we've got all this (laughs) stuff to look at with the multiverse, but I really truly believe that remote viewers are looking at a field of information that is always there. We can all tap into it. I think we tap into it when we have intuition, when we have inspiration. It's where we get our ideas from, you know, that that higher wisdom that we all get every now and then. Uh, But they're just really good at it. And they're able to see the blueprint that is sort of bubbling just underneath the surface. Right. I mean, you know, life is a highway, as they say. And if you don't have your hands on the wheel... Uh, which is, you know, free choice. You can go left a little bit. You can change lanes. Ultimately, if you take your hands off the wheel, you have one ultimate destiny, and that's your car (laughs) in the ditch, right? In a ditch, yeah, (laughs) or over the side of a bridge, you know. It's, you want a little bit of control of that car. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, Marie, uh, great pleasure uh, speaking with you. And this is a, a fascinating topic. You know, this is one of those conversations that, that uh, uh, you, you could have uh, over a bottle of wine well yes. into the night and never really ultimately resolve anything. But it's a great, it's no, a fun discussion. Keep doing it. Yes, thank you so much. I love talking about it. All right. Again, the book is Destiny versus Choice, the Scientific and Spiritual Evidence Behind Fate and Free Will. Thanks again, Marie. Thank you so much. Take care. That just about does it for me. But before I sign off, let me just give you a heads up what's coming up next week on The Conspiracy Show. Lamont Wood, author of Out of Place in Time and Space. Imagine a painting from 1460 depicting a toy helicopter, a computer from ancient Greece. We'll get into all of that when I'm joined by Lamont Wood. And uh, also we'll talk uh, to the uh, author of a, uh, an interesting book called Mad Like Tesla, uh, talking about these underdog inventors that are trying to uh, discover uh, free energy. 
In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.